Hi, and welcome to another great life impacting message from Bridge Evangelical Christian Church. For more great content and to learn more about our church, visit becc.church. Enjoy. Closer to the end of this book, so turn there with me to uh, chapter 4. And if you remember in chapter 3, the opening verses there say this, Therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden. It is hidden with Christ in God. Where is your life? It's hidden with Christ in God. Wow! Isn't that great? That means your life is in Christ, whose life is in God. Therefore, what can hurt you? They can get through to God. Guess what? They've got Jesus to deal with. Nothing. Nothing, folks. Unless your God is a weak God. Unless your Christ is a weak Christ. We've been going through our Bible study and on a Monday and Thursday night, we've been talking about the difference between a mighty and powerful God and a weak God. And it's like a weak man and a, and a strong man. You know, if you're in a place of danger, who do you want to be standing next to? The weak man or the strong man? <laughs> Why do you want to stand next to the strong man? Because you know he is strong enough to protect you. And many Christians have a weak God. I don't believe that. Yet the Bible says, fear no one but God. Therefore we we are hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is our life is revealed, then you also will be revealed (laughs) with him in glory. So that's how chapter 3 opens up. It says, to, to seek the things above where Christ is seated, to set your mind on the things above where Christ is. This is about putting our minds on Christ. You know when a mind is not on Christ, it, 
comes out in their behaviour. Let me ask some questions. What does a mindset on Christ look like when you're in a church where the people are of different race, different generation, and have different interests? What does a mindset on Christ look like? What does a mindset on Christ look like when you're a wife and a mother? What does a mindset on Christ look like when you're a husband and a father? What does a mindset on Christ look like when you're a grandparent? What does a mindset on Christ look like when you're a child? What does a mindset on Christ look like when you're an employer or an, an employee? You know, these are questions that really, they stem from the context of our passage this morning. That is the, the, the context of the book of Philip, uh, Colossians. And as you might remember, the Apostle Paul begins chapter 3 with two critical imperatives, two critical commands from verses 1 and 2. Keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God and set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. Basically what he's saying here is set your mind on Christ. <laughs> and we want to ask why? Why do we have to, to set our minds on Christ? Because if you don't set your mind on Christ, you are going to set it on something. Therefore, what follows from those two imperatives, those two commands, is really a description of what a mind set on Christ should look like. And so a mind set on Christ puts to death immorality according to chapter 3 and verse 5. It sees no distinction between race according to chapter 3 and verse 11, but that Christ is all and is in all. And then according to chapter 3 verse 18, if you're a wife, then a mind set on Christ, finds that submission to her husband is a means by which she can support him by encouraging him and helping him to set his mind on Christ. <laughs> Husbands, is your wife doing that? Is she supporting you, helping you to put your mind on Jesus? That's how you know she's in submission to you. She's not your doormat. She's not your slave. She is your support. Remember we talked about that word kupatazo in the Greek? It means to put yourself in the right order, but it's not to become a doormat or to become a, a slave. It's to be in the right place to support those above you. And the husband is the head of the household, just as Christ is the head of the church. And then according to chapter 3, verse 19, if you're a husband whose mind is set on Christ, you will love your wife in a way which imitates Christ's love for the church. Wives, is your husband loving you like Christ loves the church? If he's not, then his mind is not set on Christ. You've got some work to do. Get his mind on Jesus so that he will be the kind of man that, that would lay his life down for you, that he would take the shot so you won't have to. That he would be the kind of man who loves you so much that he sees that your greatest need is for Jesus and not for him. 
So is he that kind of man? Men, are you that kind of man? And if you're a child and your mind is set on Christ, according to chapter 3, verse 20, you will obey your parents. And if you're a father and your mind is set on Christ, you will do the best that you can to not exasperate your children, but to point them to Christ. So keeping that in mind, we come to our passage uh, this morning. We read, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well that God will open up to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have also been imprisoned, that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. Conduct yourselves with wisdom towards outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. And so we ask again, what does the mindset on Christ look like? Well, as we consider our passage, we might also say that a mindset on Christ looks like this it affects our speech it affects what we talk about it affects what comes out of our mouths it affects how we respond to people it affects what we say about people it affects how we preach and how we teach the bible it affects our counsel it affects our evangelism. So that whether you're in a church like ours and, and we have people of different race, different ages, uh, of different interests, or if you're a wife or a husband or a mother or a father or a daughter or a son or a grandparent or an employer or employee, a mindset on Christ will affect your speech. It will affect your communication and therefore it will exalt Christ and help others or it will dishonor Christ and be of no help to anyone if it's not on Christ. That's why the Apostle Paul stresses in verse 2 and verse 3, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it, with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open up to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have also been in prison. You see, when, when the, the Christian mind is taken up with Christ, according to the Apostle Paul, as he was inspired by the Holy Spirit, it affects a person. Jesus alluded to this when he had an altercation with the Pharisees in Matthew 15, and it says there, uh, Then some Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the traditions of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. 
And he answered and he said to them, Why do you, you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and your mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. Oh, Jesus takes honoring parents serious, doesn't he? But you say, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever I have that would help you has been given to God. He is not to honor his father or his mother. And by this, you invalidate the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites. Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me as a man thinks in his heart. So he, but in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Men sing to this. After Jesus called the crowd to him, he said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what enters into the mouth that defiles the man, but what proceeds out of the mouth. This defiles the man. And so in this narrative we find the Pharisees and the scribes are very upset at the disciples for not washing their hands before they ate. It's a bit like the, the hungry little boy who rushes to the table at dinner time forgetting to wash his hands after playing with the dog and mum stops him abruptly before he touches the food. So the Pharisees and the scribes, they come to Jesus and they came all the way from Jerusalem to Gennesaret. They must have been very upset to have traveled over 140 kilometers to tell Jesus that his followers weren't washing their hands before they ate. I think it really highlights what they valued more. Valued works, a valued tradition. And it highlights really what their minds were set on. In fact, their minds were set on their traditions, their rules. As Jesus rightly pointed out when he said, Why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? Oh, dare we put traditions on people and make it the law. Let's pray we never do that. You see, the, the Pharisees and the scribes had the Torah, the law, the Old Testament, the first five books of the, the Bible, and they had added their tradition to the Torah as if their tradition was law. And we know what Revelation says, don't we? That they're not to add anything to this or take away from it. And then Jesus responds to the Pharisees and the scribes by directing them back to the Torah, back to the Old Testament when he said, Honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of them will be put to death. And then Jesus exposed their hypocrisy when he revealed that instead of supporting their parents in their old age as they should have, 
they would claim their parents' entitlement to be Korban. That is, they would put their support into the temple offering and say that it was Korban so that their parents couldn't touch it. And then at a later time, they would withdraw it from there and keep it to themselves. So to sum it up, Jesus said to the disciples, that it's not what goes into a person's mouth which defiles him, but what comes out of their mouth which makes them unclean. What comes out of your mouth really tells the world what is in your heart. And then in explaining what he meant by this, Jesus said, do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach? Yeah, that makes sense, doesn't it? And then it's eliminated. But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart. And those defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile the man. But to eat with unwashed hands? No, it doesn't. In other words, the Pharisees displayed what consumed their hearts or what their minds were set on. And the evidence was in their speech. And so it's important to see the connection between what the mind is set on and how it relates to our speech. You know a man or a woman who loves Jesus, they can't help but talk about him. You know a man or a woman who loves the law and works, because they can't help but talk about him. So it's important to see this connection between what is on, what the mind is set on and how it relates to our speech how it relates to our behaviour and our teaching and our doctrine and all those things. In Galatians chapter 5, writing to the church at, at uh, Galatia, who, who were confused by the teachings of some of the, the Jewish believers who were teaching that a person needed to be circumcised a, as true evidence of their salvation, the apostle wrote this, You have been severed from Christ. You know what severed means? Here's Christ, here's you. You, you know, that's severed. You're not there with Christ. You know, you've been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by what you do. You have fallen from grace. Basically, you don't even know what grace is because grace is to get something you don't deserve. In fact, it is to to get something that you could never do. Severed from Christ. See, that's what happens when you focus on works, on the law, on traditions, on what you do. You become severed from Christ. You don't need Christ. Christ is not important anymore. He was just there as a, as a means to get you saved, and now he's there in heaven, sitting back, relaxing, while you do everything for your salvation. That's you. You are severed from 
Christ and fallen from grace. You see, those people at Galatia were no different to the Pharisees and scribes Jesus had encountered in Matthew 15. Remember the gospel they were preaching? Paul said it was a, another gospel. It wasn't the true gospel of Jesus Christ. They were preaching another gospel by saying, well, you have to do something first. And he says, look out if you are preaching that gospel because you will be anathema. So those people at Galatia were no different to the Pharisees and the scribes Jesus had encountered in Matthew 15. They believed that a person had to do something in order to be saved, namely circumcision, much like the Pharisees and scribes in Matthew 15 who believed that washing their hands, keeping the traditions, keeping the law had some kind of effect on their salvation. <laughs> the Apostle Paul said, that when one puts their eyes in belief on what they do to be saved and take their eyes of salvation by grace alone, in Christ alone, they have in effect been severed from Christ, fallen from grace. Does that mean that you can lose your salvation? No, it just means that you may not even be saved. So the mindset on, on, on works reveals itself by teaching others to focus on works. Your mind is set on works. You are going to teach everybody else to do works. Your mind is set on the law. You're going to teach everybody else to be law-abiding. Your mind is set on Christ. You're going to teach everybody to look to Jesus and trust Him. So the mindset on on works reveals itself by teaching others to focus on works, but the mindset on Christ reveals itself by directing others to Christ. And then John 15 becomes a reality, folks, when Jesus said, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you, like the the branch can't bear fruit unless it abides in the vine. Jesus says, so neither can you unless you abide in me. Since I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. How do you bear fruit? <laughs> you abide in the vine. You ever seen... Somebody prune a tree. Back in New Zealand, I used to work in, a, in, a, in an orchard, um, in a kiwi fruit orchard of all places. And, uh, and we would prune the vines, you know, about uh, at the end of picking season. And you ever seen what happens when you prune a vine, a uh, branch of the vine? Leave it there, come back the next year, it's gone rotten. Has it got fruit on it? No. <laughs> It can't bear fruit. Uh, that's what happens when you are severed from Christ. There will be no fruit. None at all. <laughs> Therefore, as we consider Colossians 4, the mindset on Christ affects our speech through prayer, much like the, the branch cannot bear fruit unless it's abiding in the vine. 
So our mindset on Christ affects our speech through prayer. That's why the Apostle Paul said, devote yourselves to prayer. You see, prayer is about speech. It's about communication. And it's a fruit which stems from a mindset on Christ. Now what we also need to remember is that Colossians is a letter to a individual. It's actually to a church. It's the church at Colossae. But it's a letter to a church. So when the Apostle Paul said that, remember it's a letter to a church. So when the Apostle Paul said, devote yourselves to prayer, who was he speaking to? The church. So he was addressing this to the church. He was saying that as a church, they should devote themselves to prayer. That means we should be gathering on a regular basis as a church to pray. And I know we do that in our Bible studies, and I know that we do that when we do Bridging the Bridge, and I know every opportunity we, 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 we can uh, do that, we, we will pray together. Amen? And yes, we pray as individuals. However, our individual prayer life is not a substitute for our corporate prayer life. In fact, our individual prayer life fuels our desire for corporate prayer. Therefore, it's not good enough to just have a church prayer meeting and think that we are participating as a church because we have a prayer meeting once a week, but we don't actually attend it. And church prayer meetings would be one of the, the least attended ministries of the church. Many Christians don't attend prayer meetings. I know. <laughs> I know this as a pastor. It's, it's, the, you know, it's the sad thing for all pastors when they have prayer meetings, a time for the church to gather. There's only a, a few that show up. However, the Apostle Paul said to the church, devote yourselves to prayer. Now the word devote is a present tense imperative. Okay, so it's a present tense command. This is a command from God, which means that it's a command to be done continually. It's to be our habit to meet as a church regularly to pray. Therefore, as a church, the Colossians were being commanded to meet on a regular basis for corporate prayer. And we too are commanded to meet regularly for corporate prayer. And so the, the elders, are, we're working on this and hopefully soon we will be able to offer you the opportunity to meet as a church and the, the place will be full. <laughs> Not because I said so, but because it says here in the Word of God, God says so. And he has more effect on you than I will ever have. But he says so. Devote yourselves as a church to prayer, meeting regularly. So we're commanded to meet on a regular basis for corporate prayer, and that's what we as an eldership are, trying, are working on, to offer that to you as an opportunity to obey this. 
to fulfill the command of the Lord's word as, you know what, as an opportunity for you to bear fruit. As an opportunity for you to bear fruit and as an opportunity for you to say, well, you know what, my mind is set on Christ. How do we know? I'm here to pray. Now, the word devotion implies a strong attachment. It, it implies an allegiance. It implies an affection for someone or for something. So to, to devote oneself involves an allocation of one's time and one's resources. There is a giving of oneself. One who is devoted is ardent, caring, committed, concerned, constant, dedicated, loyal, staunch, steadfast, and true. One who is devoted is not disloyal, they are not indifferent, or they are not uncommitted. That word devotion is a challenging term because it confronts the heart of the Christian. It begs us to ask of ourselves, are we devoted to Christ? Are you devoted to Christ? Do we love him? Has he affected our hearts in such a way that we are devoted to him in everything? It means that the one who draws our attention has won our hearts. Let me tell you, if he hasn't won your heart, you haven't met him. If you have met him, he would have won your heart. Because there is no one like him. No one. Or if you're not devoted to him, folks, it's because you have not met with him. He has not revealed himself to you and exposed his glory to your wonderful eyes and heart. It means that the one who draws our attention has won our hearts. It's that age-old tale of a man who is madly in love with the woman of his dreams. She grabs the attention of his heart night and day. In fact, even when he's sleeping, he dreams of her. And he will go to any means to be with her. He will go to any means to hear her voice. That Christ for you. That's what devoted means. And then what of prayer? It says to be devoted in prayer. Well, you know, prayer is an act of humility. It is to be like the beggar who has great need for food. And it's to be like the child who cannot solve their homework. It's to be like the man out at sea, shipwrecked and in need to be rescued. It is humbling in the sense that we are dependent on someone greater than us to provide for us what we ourselves cannot do. And so the Apostle Paul says, pray. And then in 1 Peter 
Chapter 5 and verse 5 we read this, You younger men likewise be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. And so you might think that this is about young people in the church submitting themselves to older people in the church. Right? But read the context. It's about submitting to the rule of the elders in the church. That's why Peter begins chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore I exhort the elders among you, shepherd the flock giving oversight to them. So you might think that it's about young men in the church, or young women in the church submitting to the older people, but in the context, it's about submitting to the rule of the elders in the church. But then the Apostle Peter goes on to say, and all of you clothe yourselves in humility, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the Humble. He is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And then what we need to understand here is that these verbs, subject and clothe yourselves in humility, they are commands. Right? We get the commands now, but these are commands in a passive voice. These are things that get done to you. You say, well, how does that work? You know, I'm meant to submit myself, but it's passive and it gets done to me. It works in a number of ways, but it all comes by the grace of God. It all comes by the grace of God. That is that they are a work of grace so that no man can boast before God. God keeps us humble because if he didn't, we would become proud and he would oppose us. And you don't want that. You don't want to be on the opposite opposite side of God to you because that would make you an enemy. So by grace, he keeps us humble. Otherwise, he would oppose us. And so in verse 6, the apostle goes on to say, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, under the mighty hand of God. How are you kept humble by God? You are kept humble by His mighty hand. That's what it says. Amen. That He may exalt you at the proper time. Not when you want to be exalted. <laughs> Not when you're ready to be exalted, but when He says it's the right time for you to be exalted. In fact, we don't even look for that time, do we? Because we have been kept humble. Humble people don't look to be exalted. Otherwise, they're not humble anymore. Therefore, they oppose God, and God opposes them. And so he says, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. Uh, I used this uh, illustration in our Bible study group. You know, it's like the side shows when you go to a show, like, you know, um, the show here in town, uh, and you go to the side shows, and they have that, that, that thing there, that game with the, the head pops up. Usually it's a frog and you get a little hammer and you're meant to hit the head down to keep it down. That's what that's like. God keeps your head down so you don't raise it up 
and become proud. Amen? He keeps you down because that's an act of grace. He wants you to be humble. And as an act of grace, he keeps you there under his mighty hand. And if that's not you, if you're not being humble, then you're not under the mighty hand of God. And you've got issues, particularly with God. Then we might ask, why does God keep us humble? Why does he give us all these trials and these sufferings to keep us humble? Why? We, we, we don't want that, do we? No, we need it. We need it. Do you know why? Casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Remember I said prayer is an act of humility. God keeps us humble in our, in our suffering, in our trials, in our persecution. He keeps us humble by taking away things from us that we've counted on as being our strength and our hope so that we will be humble and in being humble, we run to him and we cast all our anxieties on him because he cares for you. You know what it's like when you're suffering. You know what it's like when you're without. You know what it's like when, when you're being persecuted. And you know the things that go through your head. That's anxiety. That's anxiousness. That's also God's hand keeping you humble. He's putting you through that so you would stay humble for this purpose so that you will run to him and that you will cast all your anxiety on him because he actually does care for you. And so prayer is an act of humility because it says, I can't do this. Why do you pray? Because you think it's fulfilling some religious act that if you pray, God is going to be happy with you. Let me tell you now, take that thought away from your head. Rip it out of the pages of your book of theology. That is not why you pray. You pray because God cares for you. You pray because you've recognized that you can't fix this problem. You recognize that you have a great need. And you need a great saviour to help you. That's why you pray. And you know that, that God is so great that he can help you. So you don't have a weak and puny God. You have a God who is full of muscle. And all those muscles come to him by his wonderful attributes. God of love. God of righteousness, a holy God, a merciful God, a God full of grace, God who is kind, compassionate, caring. They are all muscles on a great and mighty, powerful God. And he cares for you. He cares for us, so therefore humility, humility drives us to the throne room. That's why he keeps us humble. What hinders a man or a woman from prayer 
is a failure to see their need and a failure to recognize the one who provides, the one who can meet their need. Why don't you pray? Because you don't believe you need help. Believe you've got it all sorted. You have not experienced humility by the hand of God. And who is this one who provides? Who is this one who can we, we can run to and cast our cares on him because he cares for us? Colossians 1, Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 to 20 tell us this: for he rescued us from the domain of darkness. There he is. That's the one you're running to. He's the one who rescued you from the domain of darkness and then transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. That's who you're running to in prayer. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. That's who you're running to in prayer. He is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things on heaven. Folks, there he is. That's who you're, you're going to. That's who's sitting on the, on the throne. That's who you're praying to. He is not a weak man. And then Colossians 2 verse 9 and 10 tell us this, For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him, in him, you have been made complete. In him you have been made complete. And he is the head over all rule and authority. Is your mind set on Christ? <clears throat> Let me tell you how important Christ is when it comes to praying. When we talk of prayer, John 14 verse 6 says this, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Without Christ, your prayers would just fall on the ground and be of no use. Do you know that? Without Jesus, you would have no access to the to the Father with your prayers. They would just fall on the ground. That would mean nothing. See how important Christ is? In fact, how do we pray? What do we say at the end of our prayers? In the name of luck. <laughs> In the name of chance. 
in the name of my wisdom, in the name of my abilities. Honestly, I think some people pray like that. In the name of what I can do. Now we pray in the name of why? Why do we pray in the name of Jesus? Which is red light. He is the mighty Savior. He is the mighty God. Without Him, we are nothing. We could do nothing. Philippians 4.13 Through Christ, we can do all things. Praise the Lord for Jesus. That's why we exalt Christ and we express Christ so that we will encounter Christ and others will too. Charles Haddon Spurgeon once said about prayer, he said, the condition of the church may be very accurately gauged by its prayer meetings. The prayer meeting is a graceometer, like a thermometer, graceometer. And from it we may judge of the amount of divine working among a people. If God be near a church, it must pray. And if he be not there, one of the first tokens of his absence will be a slothfulness in prayer. Oh, church, may we not be slothful. May we as a church, when, when the time comes soon to meet to pray, may we not be slothful, but to prepare us for that time. Set your mind on Christ. Put your mind there. Devote yourself to Read about him. See how great and amazing he really is so that he will take your heart and make it his. Let's pray as the music team comes up. Your Father God, we just want to thank you for your word this morning. Um, Lord, we thank you for, for it because it's been inspired by you through the, the, the pen of the Apostle Paul. It's as if you were writing this, Lord, but using Paul's hands to pen these words. And you call us, Lord, you command us and challenge us to devote ourselves to prayer as a church. And, Lord, we must confess that, Lord, it's not easy. Often prayer meetings are held at night and we are hungry and we want to stay home and have dinner. Oh, Lord, that's not devotion. Devotion is sacrificial. Devotion sees that there's a greater need. Devotion sees that there's somebody worth willing to, to, to forsake our meal for that we might meet with him for him. So Lord, we pray that, that you will help us by your grace to be devoted to prayer. Not, not that we want to move you in any way other than what you've already purposed, but that Lord, we think of the book of Revelation where it says that, that our prayers will be archived in a bowl. And it says that our prayers, you take our prayers and you, you store them away, Lord. You archive them in a, in, a, in a golden bowl and, Lord, one day you will let them out. The prayers of all the saints will hit the earth. And, uh, we want to know that, Lord, that our prayers will bring you that our prayers will honour you. 
that our prayers are only in response to who you are and what you're doing. So Lord, help us as a church, even in our individual life, because individual prayer fuels corporate prayer in a sense, because we're praying at home. We can't help but pray in church. But Lord, help us, we pray for your glory, we ask in the name of Jesus. And the church said,